Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream or wherever you get your podcasts. The dreamers and me la, 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 dee, da, 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 Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Pride Connection on ACB Radio Mainstream. Tonight, we have a great show. Gabriel, why don't you tell them about it? Thank you, Anthony. Uh, And uh, yes, we are delighted to bring to you part two of our conversation between uh, BPI or B-Flag founding members, Dwayne Estes and Harvey Miller. What a delightful conversation gentlemen. Uh, We are all looking forward to this part two. So I really don't want to take too much airtime because I really want to hand it over to our stars, guests, uh, founding members, friends of the evening, artists, (laughs) etc. And a special occasion this evening as well. Yes, indeed. I believe it is Harvey Miller's birthday. Yes. Uh Yes, it is. Unfortunately. I mean, fortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Well, happy and happy and happy, happy, happiest of birthdays. Absolutely, Harvey. Happy birthday. And we hope you have something amazing prepared that you have done something amazing already at this time and that you will enjoy much 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 health friendship blessings and all the best thank you very much take it away Dwayne. thank you so much anthony and gabriel and um hello my good friend harry um why don't you tell us about um your coming out process and tell us about this incredible book you found in Louisville, uh, which contained music written by Louis Braille's students and um, how you became this music archivist and worked with that book over a long period of time and turned it into uh, your own book using Sibelius. Uh, actually, first, I suppose I need to talk a little bit about uh, I had a family of or still have a family of three daughters. And how did I get involved with B-Flag back in the beginning of this? Well, it was a, a interesting story in that Adelaide had a gay student who loaned her a book. So we were sitting in the living room and she was reading it to me. This book was called The Front Runner. I'm sure that Probably people know about that. One of the early gay books, Adelaide took a break and I turned to her and said, uh, you know, I think I'm like that. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I think I'm gay. (laughs) Well, that uh, wound up with me going to psychiatrists and talking with them and so forth. And I finally decided, okay, I must be gay. And in the meantime, Adelaide had gotten a 
student, an older student actually, that she kept talking about this gorgeous hunk of a student. And circumstances wound up that uh, he was isolated on the mountain. Uh, He had been living with another man who had a job who kept him out late till about 2 a.m. And he had to go to work at 7 in the morning. And uh, in the process of uh, talking with Adelaide, Mark, this gorgeous hunk, said that he was so lonely at night. And so Adelaide decided that uh, Harvey could go and sit with him and entertain him or at least uh, talk with him and so he wouldn't be so isolated and so lonely. Well, that went on for the whole summer. And what happened was that uh, we really fell in love during that time. And we kept this to ourselves and started doing two piano works together. And uh, piano, one hand, uh, four hands with one piano. And we... uh, uh, did this sort of as an excuse to get together. But after a year, we decided we better tell the fellow that uh, Mark was living with and Adelaide, my wife. And uh, so Mark and Adelaide both turned to me and said, you have to make a choice. So I chose Mark and we lived together then for 10 years. And unfortunately, he uh, died during his 36th year. He was 36 years old. He got cancer. We discovered it in early December, and he had died two months later. So it was a very quick thing. Of course, I was devastated, and I was living by myself then. And at one point, I was asked to write a chapter in a book that uh, Judith Dixon at the Library of Congress was putting together. And this was supposedly Louis Braille's music, his music code that I was writing about. And this was a a book called Braille into the Next Millennium. So it was uh, back in the 1990s that I was asked to do this. I had pretty much exhausted all of my resources, Braille and print and et cetera, in the Library of Congress and uh, various other places that I had written about uh, getting background about how Braille, particularly the music Braille code, had been distributed over the world. So I was going to Cincinnati with a friend of mine who was also faculty member at the college and uh, who was gay, actually. And we were going to visit two friends in, of his in Cincinnati. So I persuaded him to take a little tour over to Louisville. Uh, I thought maybe there would be a library source or a uh, at least some information at the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville that would enhance the article I was working on. I practically finished it, but, uh, you know, you go for any kind of resource you can. So we got there and uh, found out they had a museum. And we met this Ann Rich, who was uh, basically uh, one of those who worked in the museum. And she said, I have something that you might be interested in. So we went over to this glass case. Well. The glass case didn't mean anything to me. I couldn't see what was in it. 
but she said there was a book that someone gave us and she took it out of the glass case, had me wash my hands, of course, and allowed me to read what it was uh, all about. And it was this book called Recibu de Marceau d'Or, and it was brailed, I should say, uh, in 1863. Harvey, could you give us the title of that book in English? Okay, it was simply a collection of organ pieces. So the names of the four composers in there, three I didn't really recognize, but one of them I did. This was Gabriel Gautier. He had popped up many times in my research about Louis Braille. Uh, Gautier uh, had arrived at the School for the Blind about the same time that Louis Braille did and they became roommates. They were about the same age. And so therefore he was uh, one of the first users of the Braille system, his good friend, Louis had been working on and uh, probably the first person to use the, the music Braille system, writing his own music. So I thought this is quite a find. And uh, of course, uh, we had to leave it there, we couldn't take it with us. So we went on to Cincinnati, but David and I, the other faculty member, uh, and I discussed how we could uh, make it available to sighted as well as to other blind people because it was locked up in the museum. Well, we went on, of course, and it was sort of percolating in, my, in the back of my mind what to do with this. And I waited until after I retired in 1999 to decide that, all right, I'm going to do something about it. So I called the museum, the American Printing House again, and talked with Anne about the possibility of going to the museum and copying the music and putting it in print. Because I had been working with a program that would, on the computer, that had been uh, made accessible to the blind by a wonderful guy, David Pinto. And it was called Sibelius Speaking. Well, I had uh, gone from that, which was version three of Sibelius to version five. And I was working with that. And I thought this would be how I could translate the Braille to print. So I arranged to go to the museum in Louisville. So I uh, gave, got permission from the folks there to come and get the uh, book out of the, the uh, glass case and read it and copy it. This was in 2002. I got my dog, Stoney, which was uh, my dog at that time, arranged uh, the uh, airline tickets to Louisville from Asheville, managed to uh, get a, a hotel reservation, the Ramada Inn, which was nearby the the, uh, the American Printing House. And so I thought, well, I'll put a big stack of rail paper in my bag and take off. So we did. We got on the plane in Atlanta to head towards Louisville. And I sat beside this lady and she was very quiet. I spoke to her, but she wouldn't speak back. And finally, she said, your dog is not a thoroughbred. 
I said, oh, gee. And I'm trying to be funny. I said, well, I guess I won't enter uh, him in uh, any kind of uh, competition then. And she didn't say a word. And then after that, I thought, well, maybe we could get a conversation going. But I thought, okay, we got to Louisville. This was in January. I uh, got a cab and went to the uh, hotel. Uh, after I arrived and checked in, I called the front desk to find out if uh, I could get a reservation in a hotel dining room. They said, oh, we don't have one. And I said, well, where is the nearest restaurant? They said, oh, it's only uh, three miles down the highway. Uh, I said, well, are they walking? No, you'll have to probably... Uh, go in the street or something to get there. Well, I decided that wouldn't work. And I found out then that there was a service station nearby that had, you know, one of these uh, dispensers that had sandwiches in them. So I managed to get over to the service station and back. And we sat down. And uh, by the time we got back, it was snowing. And we sat down on the couch. I was going to eat my sandwich and I was freezing to death. And I thought, gee, I, I'm stupid. I must have left the door open. I went over to the door. No, it was closed and found out that there was a hole under the door, uh, just about an inch that allowed the cold air to come swooping in. I thought, well, this is not getting started very well here. Anyway, we uh, managed to get enough towels and various things to stuff this uh, door. And uh, at least uh, Stoney and I then curled up on the couch and I ate my sandwich. And so anyway, we uh, managed to get through the night and I found out the next day that they did have uh, a breakfast bar. So Harvey, I'm a little concerned. How did, how did you manage to keep yourself fed if the nearest restaurant was three miles from where you were staying? Well, actually, it was very fortunate. Anne Rich, who was at the museum, was a very kind woman. And she said when she heard that I had no restaurant nearby, she drove me home, drove me to the hotel, that is, and uh, stopped in at a restaurant and picked up a carryout food. And so she did that every day that I was there at this hotel. Uh, there was a restaurant at the museum. So I had lunch there. So I had plenty of food along with the breakfast that was provided at the hotel. Did it get warmer in the room? Well, not really. Um, I was able to, as I said, uh, cover the door and it was, uh, you know, it had snowed. And so there was ice and snow everywhere. <laughs> and uh, we had to find a place for Bailey to relieve himself, of course, in the ice and snow. But uh, all of that uh, we took care of and uh, managed to get through the two weeks that I was there. That's great. And um, that speaks of your good, solid character and your unwillingness to give up in the face of diversity. And, and for that, you are to be commended. Well, I was forced to uh, not give up since I had an airline ticket, you know, that uh, was uh, 
two weeks after I got to Louisville. So I had to manage my way. And because of lots of help uh, from Ann Rich and uh, Michael Hudson, who was also in the museum, uh, we managed to get through those two weeks without too much difficulty, I would say. Anyway, we got on to the uh, museum and I had tremendous help, uh, really a, a lot of help with Anne. She got me all set up with a desk and a place for the book. I would planned to spend two weeks. I thought that would be enough time to copy 54 pieces. And so I uh, sat down with a Braille writer and I was going to copy from the Braille book into Braille and then take my Braille copy home and put it into the computer with the help of the Sibelius program. I had to write, uh, copy the music with one hand and read with the other hand. So you can imagine pressing six keys with five fingers was not easy. I, unfortunately, when I got home, found out I hadn't made a lot of mistakes. Anyway, just trying to do it in that fashion. So I decided that this would not work. I had, fortunately, uh, Adelaide and I still were good friends. And uh, after I got the uh, music put into the Sibelius and printed it out, she played it. She is an organist. She has a performance degree in organ. So we uh, discovered that there were mistakes uh, simply because it, the times it sounded more like Shostakovich or, or Stravinsky, <laughs> and it did, <laughs> uh, you know, the romantic music of the 19th century. So tried to correct and try to figure out what I had meant by certain things that appeared in this Braille copy that I had made. And we were able to pretty much uh, get the music straightened out to a certain extent, I would say. And then Adelaide performed some of the pieces even from that copy. But then I tried to figure out how I could get back. By then I had purchased a car and uh, a former student, actually of Brevard College, not one of my students, but a former student at Brevard College had retired and come back to Brevard. And I met him and we started sort of hanging out together and uh, discovered that he could drive pretty well. And I asked him if he would like to go to Louisville for a couple of weeks. So in this fashion, I was able to pack my computer and the uh, MIDI keyboard that uh, I could enter the music with a regular keyboard, not just a Braille keyboard. We packed that up and went to Louisville. And fortunately, we stayed in the same hotel, but they had remodeled it by then. And this was a couple years after my first trip to Louisville. He had fun in Louisville driving my BMW convertible around. I'm sure he did. So <laughs> anyway, so it was over the next five to six years that I went back and forth to Louisville, not staying for a long time each time, but long enough, uh, and working from eight in the morning to 4.30 in the afternoon uh, with Sibelius and with that uh, book. 
And uh, I actually, after I took the computer with me, I had to go back and check the whole first part of the book that I had worked on. Now, I haven't said much about the folks who wrote this this music. Well, please do. Please do. Yes, uh, I would like to, because as I said, I recognize the name Gautier, having done the uh, research on Louis Braille, as Louis Braille's roommate at the School for the Blind. And then they both became teachers there, uh, both Louis Braille and uh, Gabriel Gautier had churches when they were about 17 or 18 years old. They got churches in the Paris area uh, as uh, organist. And uh, this also was uh, how uh, uh, Guit, another of the composers, Maurice Guit, he was born at the same time as uh, Braille and Gautier. And what year was that? Well, uh, Gautier and Guit were born in uh, 1808. Louis Braille was born in 1809. And so they arrived basically at the same time when they were about 10 years old, 11 years old, at the School for the Blind in Paris. So when they were 17, 18 years old, they took over church positions in Paris. In fact, the priests in the churches in Paris went to the School for the Blind for organists because they were trained so well. And the uh, new school, which was built in uh, 1843, had three Cavaillacol organs, which is probably the best uh, organ builder in Europe at that time, Cavaillacol. And uh, he built three organs for the School for the Blind. And these uh, folks at the school trained these organists and uh, put them out in churches. In fact, there were dozens of blind organists all over Europe at this time. And in Paris alone, there were 18 churches that had blind organists that were trained at the School for the Blind. One uh, organist that uh, became quite famous, Louis Vierne, and he uh, played at Notre Dame until he died. And he attributed two of these composers, two that I haven't mentioned so far, but uh, this was uh, Julian Harry and Victor Paul. Uh, Julian Harry and Victor Paul came along later after Gautier and Guit, but they were the teachers of Louis Vierne. In fact, uh, Harry uh, Vierne refers to him uh, as an old crusty teacher. Uh, (laughs) uh, He calls him a crouton. It was his nickname for him, uh, which is, I guess, a crust of bread anyway. These uh, men basically were at the beginning of the French sound, French organ school of the period. And so they're really significant organists, significant teachers, and their music should be heard and should be played. 
And this is why I was so, I guess, uh, obsessed over getting this music into the hands of the public. Well, of course, just putting it on uh, my computer and printing it out was not getting it into the public hands. Uh, I talked with people at the Library of Congress and they wanted to publish it in Braille in a modern edition. Well, I was quite willing to do that. In the meantime, I had contacted a friend in New York who told me about a publisher in Germany. And so I wrote him with the idea that maybe he would publish this music in print. Well, he referred me to a, a, a publisher in Wisconsin. So I wrote them, this was AR Editions. I found out later that they were the world premier publisher of historical music. After I found that out, I thought, oh dear, am I going to have a chance? Well, they decided that they should print it. And so we worked for at least a year with the uh, editors and publisher in Wisconsin, this AR Editions. And the music was then published in print by this company and uh, is now available, of course, through their catalog. Uh, the edition is uh, only $240, so uh, just pennies, you see. <laughs> I regret that it was so expensive, but uh, that's the way music is these days. So uh, it is available, and also the, in four volumes, this book, from uh, Louisville, American Printing House, is now in four volumes in the Library of Congress. So it can be ordered there in Braille. Well, that's wonderful. That's fabulous. By any chance, do you have uh, an example that you could play for us? So Adelaide's going to play four pieces. Uh, the first by Gabriel Gautier, and the next one by Julian Harry, and that's H-E-Acute-R-Y-Harry. Victor Paul and uh, Marius Guit in that order.
So Harvey, out of these um, four composers, do, do you feel one is maybe stronger than another or are they all kind of equal? Well, I think they are probably all rather uh, pretty much equal. I think a lot of people liked uh, the music of Victor Paul. Uh, his was the only music in the book that had actually a pedal part as part of the composition. Uh, the other composers simply had, I, I would say, a part that obviously would be put on the pedal. So um, actually what happened was that uh, when this book came out, I was concerned about the price. And so uh, I and Adelaide selected 14 pieces that we had been using in various ways, uh, mainly for church services, that um, would, I think, be appealing to, the, to most people, to organists. And we uh, edited those and put a pedal part in all of them so that it was easier, perhaps. And we uh, cut some, uh, in other words, uh, shortened them, took out some of the repetition, things of this sort. Did a little and, editing. Yes, we edited it and put in uh, suggested uh, stops for the organ. And I think that would enhance its value also. So anyway, and now we're looking for a publisher for this music. I'm sure you will find one. And for uh, our listeners who may not understand what Harvey means by a stop on an organ, um, stops are knobs or um, buttons or switches that you push to have the organ create a different sound. And you can use several different sounds for uh, to create one sound. And it just gives you the ability to have um, things to have their own sound and their own voice. Yes. Uh, and it, it, the French sound is one that has a very reedy sound. Reeds, in other words, uh, you could think of oboes and clarinets as being reeds, but the organ sort of imitates that sound from an orchestra. And these stops, when you pull them or press them or whatever you do to them in a particular organ, uh, it would create a variety of sounds, uh, sometimes higher, sometimes lower, and sometimes of various qualities. The romantic organ of the period in which these composers were writing was a distinctive organ and uh, particularly in France. And it was this that was so exciting about this music is that this is where it started. César Franck was a constant presence at the School for the Blind. He was in charge of the Paris Conservatory and uh, he was recruiting people from the School for the Blind to come to his conservatory. And he wrote music for the orchestra and the chorus at the School for the Blind. People don't realize that. And a lot of his organ pieces sound very similar to those that uh, were in this particular book. And another thing about this book, it was published, as I said, in 1863. 
when was it that Louis Braille created the Braille system? Well, he was working on it when he was 12 and perfected it over the years, uh, over the next uh, few years. And so uh, if he were born in 1809 by, uh, say, 1832, it would have been perfected or maybe before that. And this book was published in 63. And there was a lot of turmoil, if uh, anybody knows anything about the history of Braille. Uh, when it first appeared, uh, the teachers at the School for the Blind were excited about it. But then they decided, oh, well, we can't read this. Uh, they need to go back to reading raised letters, and we can read that. Uh, these were sighted teachers, of course. of course. And so they banned the use of rail at the School for the Line. Of course, it was not called rail. However, fortunately, I guess the uh, folks, uh, the teachers, finally decided, well, maybe music could be used in this system. But they wanted the regular uh, books the uh, literary books, I would say, still in that raised print form. So how long but, was it before they accepted? Well, really? it was probably shortly before this book was published, because actually in the book, it says, probably for the first time, that this was written in the Braille system. In other words, they called it Braille called the six-dot system Braille. And uh, Judy Dixon at the Library of Congress said that she didn't realize that it, it had been uh, named that this early. So it's probably one of the earliest times that uh, the name Braille was used for the six-dot system. Did it Louis probably Braille was the first book published in Braille, too, first music book. Did, did Louis Braille live long enough to realize that this system was going to bear his name? I don't think so, no. Gautier died that year in 63. Louis Braille uh, died about a year and a half before that in 61. It's really amazing. And I, I, um, I think musical archivists can certainly now be added to the list of all the things that uh, you have managed to do. And that's just incredibly exciting. And what do you attribute to your continuing to uh, be curious about music and to want to find other projects? And I, I guess what kind of keeps you at it? Because it seems to me that you're always finding something musically to get into that is totally different than what you just did? Well, actually, you know, I have a musicology degree, <laughs> which means that uh, you were always looking for things or at least having to study uh, ancient music or early music or uh, music of the Renaissance and so forth. And so this book was so intriguing in that it was basically a lost book of music. And so this is what keeps me going, looking for things of this sort. It was really, I mean, this was came, this 
particular book came out of the time of uh, revolution in France. Uh, there were lots of stormy things going on during this time. There were uh, churches that were being commandeered for stables for horses. This school for the blind was stuck into this uh, smelly old building that had been uh, built as a, a monastery or a nunnery or something of that sort maybe 800 years prior to this. The school was started, you know, only around uh, 1784. The Paris School then was uh, put into this building uh, right around the turn of the century and was left in this condition. I mean, uh, from the descriptions of the of the building, it must have been really bad because they were right on the edge of the river and there was uh, malaria and, uh, or at least uh, uh, mosquitoes coming up and the smell of the river. And oh my goodness. Uh, I mean, it was just awful. And walls were coated with, uh, oh, uh, moss. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, yes. You yes. Can, can, you can imagine. Uh, how the conditions were there. So you didn't know that this book of music existed until you and your friend stopped there in Louisville and you literally just happened upon it. That's right. I mean, it was just an accident that uh, if, I guess if uh, Judy Dixon hadn't asked me to write this chapter for her book, that I would have never discovered it. Uh, you know, I I, th I think maybe at some point uh, along the way, because there were ACB conventions in Louisville, and we took tours of the American Printing House, and maybe, <laughs> maybe I would have seen that book, but it's most unlikely. That's really cool that a... You know, a lot of musical... Uh, items, uh, box music, or um, I've heard recently that there was a piece of Beethoven's recently found, somebody's attic. I mean, you know, these things occur, and it's only quite often just through accidental uh, happening on something that uh, these things are found. And this is a real jewel. And I'm trying to make sure that people know about it. I'm trying to advertise it here, there, and everywhere to just to make sure that people know about this music and want it and want to play it. I know that the people at AR Editions, uh, many of them are organists, and they are using the music in their churches well, because it is good. It is really good. Adelaide's a fine organist. Have you have you thought about maybe um, finding a really fine instrument and uh, having her pick out um, ten or twelve of these pieces and and play them and literally put them out there for the public to to download? Or well, we have thought about it, and uh, you know we're not young, <laughs> neither one of us, 
she gave up her organ position at a church last year. And she also stopped teaching at the college. She was teaching actually uh, music and accompanying at the college until last year. Uh, you know, we try to keep ourselves young and whether this is possible, uh, there are lots of fine organists. And if I can talk them into doing something like this, I would be glad to do it. Uh, I'll be glad to try to get a recording done and make it available to the public. I think that would really be the way to, to get it more out there. I find that oftentimes, if someone has a chance to hear a piece of music, that can kind of spurn an interest in them to to want to play it. Yeah. So, um, well, actually, there's a website, St. Philip's Church, that I could uh, send to anyone who would like to. Uh, it's a program that Adelaide and I gave right after the book was published uh, three years ago. And uh, uh, that would be an excellent place to hear the music. She played a lot of the pieces. It just never ceases to amaze me at all of the things that you find to do. And I didn't realize that you had a degree in musicology. Yes. That just goes to show you that you can know somebody 20 years and find out something you didn't know. Yeah, um, actually, that was why I got the uh, bachelor's degree in music, because I knew I'd be going into musicology. I wouldn't have time to practice. So I wanted to uh, do a, a, a major recital prior to uh, going de- diving into the library and uh, getting lost in the stacks somewhere doing this musicology degree. Musicology is a very, it's a neat aspect of music. And there are some really fine musicologists. And then there are unfortunately some that aren't so fine. I had the opportunity to to um, work with two fine musicologists as I was finishing college. One, one gentleman was really into early music and um, uh, he he absolutely loved it. And um, the other professor I had, he had he had really studied 20th century music, uh, serial music, and wrote his dissertation and uh, uh, gave and presented it and and defended it and all of that, only to then decide he didn't believe a word of it and he was going back to Beethoven and Bach. <laughs> I guess uh, as people can change. Well, their mind. I think people can get disillusioned with uh, musicology because they uh, are so entrenched in what they're doing. I know that my piano teacher at Chapel Hill uh, was actually head of the American Musicological Society, the AMS, uh, for several years. And he wrote several books on the sonata, the history of the sonata. Yes, which is a form. Yes. And he uh, actually took a sabbatical one semester uh, while I was studying with him. And I went off to somebody else and I never got back to him as far as uh, his teaching was concerned, uh, because I just stayed with the person I went to. But 
uh, he has always, he was really a very kind person, a mentor and a person that uh, I went back to on occasion and talked with him about various things. As we talked in our first section, it really speaks highly of an instructor when a student stays in touch or comes back to talk to them about uh, a certain subject or to, to ask their advice on maybe what they should do with this piece of music or even what they should do to pursue the next, the next stage of their career. Um, I'm all about that. I, I really am. And, and fine instructors are our mentors and they are the people that make a difference. And I think it's just good to keep as many of those folks in our lives for as long as we can. Well, I did. And I'm glad that I did because he was really a very kind individual, uh, a real powerhouse as far as uh, intellect was concerned too. Absolutely. Uh, And something interesting also, uh, his name was William Newman. And his first cousin was Paul Newman. The actor Paul Newman? Yes. Oh, my goodness. That's a pretty good cousin to have. (laughs) Yes, I know, really. I mean, we knew that, you know, as an undergraduate, I knew that uh, Paul Newman was his cousin. That's very cool. I have thoroughly enjoyed spending this time and talking to you about this stuff. And while down through the years, I've I've heard bits and pieces of it. I've never really had the chance to kind of hear it all put together and presented in the way that you've uh, done in these two programs. And I uh, really thank you for doing that. And I also thank you for being a a mentor for me. And I have certainly Mm -hmm. relied on your wisdom and uh, counsel over the past 20 years. You were one of the first blind music instructors that my VR teacher, uh, my VR counselor, excuse me, uh, introduced me to. And um, uh, that happened in 1998. And of course, then in 1999, when we met at the first ACB convention I attended in Los Angeles, it took me a couple of days to put it all together that you (laughs) were the nice guy who I had talked to, who assured me that it was going to be okay and it was going to be different, but I could do whatever I wanted to do. And uh, that has always meant a lot to me. And I've always appreciated your friendship so much. Well, I remember that. Uh, I remember you calling me and uh, we talking for a while. And I guess we had several sessions you were really very discouraged at that point because of your vision. And I tried to, and I hope that, uh, and I'm, I know that you took my advice and kept going and you finished that master's degree that you were working on. And I'm really proud of you. I thank you. And, and I did. And, and, you know, our, our mutual friend, Leah Gardner, who wrote the wonderful poem vision uh, for me, really, through that poem has has taught me that although we may lose our eyesight, 
we don't have to lose our vision. And that's what I have, I have really tried to hold on to is, is my vision. And certainly my eyesight is gone, but I've always got a plan. Uh-huh. Sort of turning the page back a little bit about my coming out to Adelaide and to my family, and they have all been very supportive. Uh, I remember a skit, I guess it was, that Georgia Shidas did for ACB. It was, I think, for the banquet. And one of the things he said was, I'm blind, so I can't be gay. And of course, this is what I was thinking in my, I think, that uh, kept me from uh, really approaching myself and the reality of my sexuality uh, over the years. Uh, because I was blind, I certainly couldn't be gay too. So, But I think we found out that uh, you can be almost anything when you're blind, as well as gay. Absolutely. You can Absolutely. be a musician, you can be almost anything. So. Absolutely. Uh, I, although I was sighted and came out, well, I came out at 16. As I got to be a little older, I was just amazed that there were gay plumbers, there were gay doctors, there were gay teachers, there were just all kinds of gay folks. And I just happened to be a gay musician. And so I thought, well, you know, if they can do it, so can I. And that's just sort of what I did. I just decided that that this was a part of my life and I was going to have to figure out how to live that life and how to do something meaningful with it. And I've worked very hard to do that. And I know you have as well. And I know that your family is very, is very proud of you. And I have had the opportunity of, of meeting your daughter, Jennifer, but, um, and, and uh, as I said before, she's a fine musician and I know you're certainly proud of her. And I want you guys to work together just as often as you possibly can. Well, we will certainly try. I'm writing a piece right now for her. So well, that's that's fantastic. Hopefully we'll get it done. I have no doubt that that you will in fact get it done. And again, this has been a real pleasure and uh, I look forward to seeing you very soon. I um, spend some time in Macon, Georgia, but most of my time in St. Louis and uh, when I'm in Macon, uh, my partner Dale and I are going to have to come up, come up to Brevard and get in your basement and find some of those records you've been looking for. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there are a lot down there, so uh, you may have fun. I, I love records, so that'll be a labor of love. And so um, I'm going to wrap this up by saying whatever you're doing is working real good for you. So keep on doing that. And although Although music is a mean mistress and she calls us at the times when we at least want to be called for the next time she sends for you, I'm going to put my money on. You're going to see what she wants. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dwayne Estes and Harvey Miller. Stay tuned for a couple of musical pieces based on Harvey's work and some of his own compositions and look for those pieces on blindlgbtpride.org. See you next week. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. Blind LGBT Pride.
Dreamers and me, that.